Give it up for the man I have known as a boss for many years, my mentor, my friend, Steve Harvey. An amazing man in media, me. And tonight we're going to look back at my career and see all the fun moments we had. You know, and I've made a career out of empowering white women and straight black men. And tonight we're going to look back and reflect on that. I'm Rosanna Stevens, and this is The Antidote for the Belladonna, an interview podcast profiling women and non-binary comedy writers set in a place of personal significance for them. That was this episode's guest, Millie Tamares, playing Steve Harvey, a satirical role she takes up wearing a bald cap and a suit in a 45-minute show about Steve Harvey. Tamares writes and stars in the show and visits Steve Harvey's many appearances on shows like Miss Universe, Family Feud, and his own talk show. Playing characters is one of Millie Tamaras's many talents and abilities. Tamaras is a stand-up comedy teacher and writer based out of Brooklyn, New York. She's written for shows and websites including NPR, BuzzFeed, Reductress, and she's been featured on Thrillist, Vice, BET, Above Average, and Comedy Central. She's one of the creators and producers of Flex, a satire magazine for people of colour, and Diverse's Fuck Festival, a festival that highlights diversity in comedy. Millie is also one of the founders of the All Women of Colour Improv Team Affirmative Action, and she can be seen performing in theatres and venues across New York City. And it's for all of these reasons that I really wanted to interview Millie Tamaras. Millie makes her own rules and sets her own definition of what being a comedy writer is. It's not just sitting down and churning out words. It's not just getting up on a stage and making people laugh. It's creating the conditions for a community around you that Millie does so incredibly well. Speaking of conditions, I went to Millie's apartment in Brooklyn, New York to interview her and as I got off the train, it was so cold, (laughs) so cold that it began to snow into my face. Isn't that a beautiful sound? It's the music of my eyes watering. Millie lives in a pretty busy area in Brooklyn, right beside quite a busy road. And so the next thing that I want you to listen to, which blew my mind, is how the noise of the street completely fades as you step through the entranceway of Millie's apartment block and then into Millie's apartment. Oh. Hi. Hey. I just messaged you. Like, Gary! <laughs> right. Oh, amazing! Is it snowing? Yeah, just started. I promise you, there is payoff for listening to that later on in this conversation. I got comfy on a sofa in her living room and set up the audio equipment while Millie zapped something nice and warm in the microwave to sip on while we chatted. You are a very clear advocate for finding your voice in many ways as well as being a comedy writer yourself mm-hmm. you founded diverse as fuck festival yeah you co-founded flex mm-hmm. and these are both institutions mm-hmm. that are about promoting and helping people mm-hmm. find their voices mm-hmm. when did you find yours would you say huh i don't know i feel like I can't even answer that properly because I feel like, you know, they have those Facebook like on this day. Yes. I, I don't even know if I could sharply like be like, oh, yeah, these five words are my voice. I feel like I can now. 
but yeah i'm able to like sharply these five words are me or like this is the kind of stuff i like to do but you know i look back at statuses or little jokes that i would post 10 years ago so and i was like oh yeah like i already knew like my brand was my brand before it was my brand you know and i'm only able to like refine it and sharpen it so i can get it to any situation but it's just been a, a whole lifelong process of finding my voice um, it, it wasn't something that I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to talk about. It was something like over time and over experiences. I'm like, oh, this is who I, you know, this is who I am. This is what I like. What kind of experiences would you say in hindsight mm -hmm. you can reflect on and think, yeah, this was a moment or this was an activity that really helped me notice something about myself because it's such a beautiful moment to have that second where you go oh yeah this is who I am it was always there yeah. but now I see it so you know <laughs> this is so stupid but like I kind of see you know like all dick is trash is one of like my favorite taglines or whatever that I use for that particular thing, I didn't know I was in my prime, but like I was dating two guys at the same time and they had the same name. And one of them was like a little chubbier and then the other one uh, had abs <laughs> and was older. And one of them was like really rich and uh, or not really rich, but he did well for himself and was a little chubbier. And then I had sex with both of them in the same week. <laughs> Uh, and I, yeah, I was not good at balancing that. But like, I remember, yeah, I was with this one guy and it was like bad sex. It was really bad sex. And then I was like, oh, well, I'm going to go talk to the other one a few days from now, like, like the same week. <laughs> and um and I'm like, and he has abs and he's like over 30. So the sex is going to be great, you know? And it was terrible as well. <laughs> it was maybe even worse. And I was like, wow. This is like, this is like, there's all kinds of bad. And like, I had all these expectations. And that was like one of the clicks, you know? I mean, that's like not a great, I mean, of course, I was like, as a woman, but that was just one of the things I was like, I'm like, huh. So that was like one of the <laughs> key moments where I'm like, oh, this is all bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. How soon after that did you make the parody TEDx talk, All Dick is Trash? It was like two, three years later. And um, that happened because I went, like, I was hanging out, like, hanging out with this one guy. And we were hanging out and I don't know, like, uh, and, you know, there was like a tension there. It was like a flirtation. You know, he's a comedy guy, but he like, uh, you know, he, he messaged me and he was like, hey, I saw you on Tinder and I swiped right. And then I was like, oh, I thought you had a girlfriend. And he's like, we just broke up. And I was like, oh, cool. And then I'm like, so me and him were hanging out. And then, you know, we were at a party and, uh, you know, he went to go get a, a drink at the bar and he was started making out with another girl. I was so pissed. And then, um, this is so fucking, I was so pissed. And then, um. I go to another bar. So we all go to the other. So I, I yell at him. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? And he's like, man, whatever. Like, why are you so upset? And I'm like, you know why I'm so upset? You came here with me. And like, you know, and I'm just like, are you going to go to the next bar? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, are you going to go with her? Are you going to go with me? 
And he's like, I'm going with her. And I'm like, fuck you, man. So I was so pissed. And I'm like fucking fuming at the next bar. And like he comes in with this girl and I'm so mad. I'm so hurt. And this whole time this other guy's talking to me. And he's talking to me. And I'm just like, my eyes are just like staring at this fucking guy. Like, fuck this guy. Fuck her. I hate them both. This other guy I'm talking to is heavily flirting with me. And I'm not even picking it up at all. And then he's like touching me, like kind of flirtatiously. He's like, is this okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I'm just so... And then later I was like, oh, and then I end up going home with him. And then after that, like we sleep together. And then the next morning he's like, uh, hey, uh, should I go to my girlfriend's or my ex-girlfriend's house and tell her I made a huge mistake? And then, what? And I was like, what? And then like there's other stuff that happened. And then like. To, like literally there's a so then that guy was a fucking wash and then i went on another date with another guy and we always had attention we always had a flirtation like i'm gonna go all in on this guy we like hang out and then we go back to my place and then he's like let's go to on the roof i'm just like ooh, okay yeah and on the roof he's like i'm gay and i haven't told anybody <laughs> And I'm like, oh man. Really? <laughs> this is all sucks. And that was all in one month. So like a month later, I was like, okay, I'll take a stretch. For me, if I could, and this is like a passion that I would love, is to write like a 13 book graphic novel of you know what i mean because it's like a villain origin story of like there's you know when you're watching a vision you know like in joker or whatever but like i wrote my back. you know <laughs> it's not it's one thing but it's like building up to this huge moment of like and then the lightning strikes that it's like this villain is born and you're just like yeah what i'm really drawn to in that story mm-hmm. is the fact that you have developed your voice mm-hmm. by living yeah there is writing there yeah but all of these stories are accumulating into what you find funny yeah and like you have to laugh because if not you'll cry (laughs) (laughs) so when you are teaching or you're at the festival the versus fuck festival Mm -hmm. what do you see your students and the people that you're supporting most commonly do or are afraid of or have to work through to get to their own voice i feel like people um they're they're trying to overcomplicate things you know with with students like i just taught a class last night so it's like they're writing all this stuff and i see them make common mistakes that i used to make where it's like you know the real joke is that they reveal it at the end but if you're taking three minutes to like finally get to this reveal, it's like the funniest part about this was the reveal. And if you did it up top, you can have more fun with it, you know, or they'll try to like say things about what everyone else is talking about or just things that aren't true to their experience. Like there's this guy in his 50s that I was teaching and he did this whole thing about like don't you feel like there are too many minorities like but i but he's like learning and stuff and i'm like honestly like it's not to say that you can't make any commentary on the way that society is moving it's just that it's going to be harder for you and you don't want to fight an uphill battle you want to get people on board as, as soon as possible if you just write about your life and what you know and your experience then it's not going to take as much for people to be on board with you it's that that kind of stuff i feel like people view like comedy masters you know like chris rock or like and like there's like some crazy premises and stuff but i'm like you have to understand these people have been working on it for 
10, 20 years, and they've been working on this hour for one year, right? So the way that they phrased it, the way that they set it up, what they're acting out, they've been working on it for a long time. You know, and I say like, people view LeBron James and like his like masterful basketball and they're not like, oh, I can do that tomorrow. You know what I mean? But people view, you know, comedy in that way of like, oh, they're talking, I can talk, I can do this. And it's like, no, it's an art that takes a long time and like you know what just make it as easy as possible for people to laugh with you so you know with that guy you know i'm just like you're a father you're jewish like talk about things about your experience and then people will be more on board with you and like will not be like the wheels are spinning in their head of like oh you know yeah i mean that's all i could do as a teacher you know i've seen you do stand up about your lived experience as well in fact i could be mistaken but it could be about this very kitchen Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, God. We are sitting opposite. I know. Uh, uh, this kitchen frustrates me. But yeah. The nicest thing anyone's ever said about my apartment is that it has character. And the <laughs> meanest thing that anyone's ever said about my apartment is when my roommate's parents came to visit uh, from California. And they're immigrants from Cambodia. They escaped the Khmer Rouge in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, her parents uh, came to our apartment, and her mom walked in and just started crying. (laughs) (laughs) What has kept you in this apartment since you did that stand-up show? It's literally the rent. Like, oh, my God. Because, okay, the thing that surprises me the most about this apartment Mm -hmm. is that out on the street, it's there's, like, the constant rush. It's almost like an ocean of highway. And then you come in here and it's you can't so hear anything. quiet. Yeah, you can't hear anything. So, like, I pay under $1,000. That's amazing. And, you know, I live in Williamsburg. And, like, prime Williamsburg, like, right by the train. And honestly, too, like, my landlord sucks. Which, like, there's a lot of bad things about it. Like, obviously, my kitchen looks like this. Uh, and there's a lot of shit I have to do by myself and stuff. But then, you know... I haven't paid my rent yet. <laughs> we're on the, we're on the, what, the 11th or something. He hasn't even noticed, or the 12th. He hasn't even noticed that I haven't paid my rent yet because he's just so bad at this. And he owns a ton of buildings and he's always super overwhelmed. And so, you know, I don't go a month without paying my rent, but like I'm waiting literally, literally on like six checks to come in. In that same set, you were talking about having a temp job that was in home decor home decor yeah yeah. and you were talking about the bane of most young freelancers jobs which is temping not having something permanent what keeps you doing comedy because it sounds like you're doing a lot of jobs at once now yeah (laughs) so i guess yeah i ask because i think it's something that a lot of people have to go through but it's actually a logistical thing in your life Yeah, it's just tough, like, jobs fucking suck. So I was, like, freelancing a lot and, like, had all these things and it was just getting stressful. And the thing, you know, I was doing marketing consulting and stuff and, like, writing posts and creating marketing strategy for different, like, mid-level brands. That's not enough to live off of, but at least I could start doing other shit, Um, you know, like teaching or whatever and, you know, doing shoots. It's tough because you just never know when you're going to get an audition or when you're going to shoot or this and that. So it's even hard to maintain a a part-time job. And then I got like recruited for a full-time job 
and they're like, oh, and then it just seemed like it could be a lot more flexible than, and then the pay was so good. And I was like, okay, I'll do this for a year and then I'll get out. And then coming in every day sucked. And then it was just like a fundamental cultural shift between like people who have no work-life balance at all. Like my bosses had no work-life balance at all. They're working 20 hours a day and they don't sleep and all that stuff. And me, who's like, you know, I remember I had a performance review and it was right after I found there was a job that I really wanted to write for. And I didn't even get an interview and maybe other people in my life did. Other friends that I forwarded the packet to did, you know, and I was so fucking heartbroken. And I remember going in the staircase of my job and crying. And I'm like, I'm never going to make it in comedy. And then, you know, then I have to go into this performance review and I'm sitting there like, and my tears had just dried up. And then they're like, we feel like you don't care about sleep apnea. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, why the fuck would I, you know what I mean? Like, like y'all don't pay me that much to care. Like, fuck off. And then, I, you know, I got fired, like, back in August. And my ego was totally bruised. For after that, that's when I started contributing with NPR. And then, you know, if I got the residency at NPR. And, like, you know, I really think, like, if I did not get fired, I wouldn't have gotten that great opportunity. How did you get involved in NPR in the first place? I got recommended, actually. Like, somebody who, um, Rama Tellis who actually did the DAF program. So he did DAF a long time ago. He did the free workshops, applied, got the fellowship at the Onion, and he was like our first true DAF success story. He recommended me and he was like, just told me basically, he's like, you know, I I owed you a favor for sure because you really like helped change my life. But I also chose people that, you know, will make me look good, like that will actually take it seriously and work hard. So you came from writing stand-up and writing... Uh, flex articles Mm -hmm. what did you notice was different about writing for radio or was it really similar there's a lot of similarity with like the word economy it's and writing for script and stuff too is the same thing of like you just have to use as less words as and that's like huge 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 I feel like conceptually I got it but like in the writer's room it was like how can you get this idea across with the least amount of words? And then they would go back and like, like, I remember they, you know, we had like little reviews and stuff. Um, You know, we're editing in flex. We tend to edit more for voice and not so much like trying to get your idea across because somebody's actually going to say it, you know? And I think that's the thing with um, writing, even like script writing too, that I feel like people don't get. It's like, somebody actually has to say this. So you want to keep it as... And then also, like, you want to make every joke as clear as possible. It's not like scripts where you can have, like, dot, 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 or, like, uh, parentheses sarcastically. You know what I mean? They're reading exactly. So, like, if you don't have it written exactly how you want it to be said, like... On top of that, is there a challenge associated with writing for a voice that isn't yours? For sure. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like, I mean, that's just a problem or not a problem, but like an issue that I feel like a lot of people have, a lot of shows have. It's like, how can we maintain the voice of this show, of this person, but also bring in new voices? And I feel like that's just really tough. 
the diversification of comedy is something that is really interesting at this time in history when you look at all of the white men who are still in charge of shows yeah. and then the diversification of writers' rooms that are still writing for that voice. What does the diversification of comedy actually mean for you? It's tough because I think that people have good intentions and I see and I do think that having a diverse writer's room does bring a new perspective and new things. And I think it could only make it better. But at the same time, it's just the difference between diversity and inclusion, right? And diversity is like, who's in the room, but inclusion is like, do they have the power to make sure their voice is heard? Are their voices heard? Are their ideas weighed the same? And I feel like right now, if, like people's kind of bandaid is to, you know, hire people of color women or queer people at the bottom level and that is helping but i i don't but you know i i've heard multiple people like a lot um in writing and in in fat tire rooms and in tv shows say like they don't get my jokes they don't put my thing across they're so worried about being racist that they don't do anything racial like you know i can't write you know i have a friend who wrote on a sketch show and he was like i couldn't even write a sketch about a cookout because they're like oh can you say barbecue and they like made it so they sanitize it so much that it's just not even the sketch anymore you know i i really think about that all the time of like you know i'm not saying we should revamp everything and i don't know if i have all the answers but that's also why when I created Flex, like I'm at the top and all the editors are people of color. And I do feel like people of color from what I've seen, you know, and even me as editor in chief, you know, sometimes people will bring in like ideas that I have no idea. Like I know Diana, she's Asian American and she's like, we did like a Chinese New Year sketch or, or we did something. And then she was like, oh, well, the number eight is really significant in like Chinese culture, you know, like bringing that kind of stuff. And like, it's also like, hey, you know what? I don't get it. But if you think it's funny and if other people think it's funny, then let's do it. You know, and I feel like where as other people, you know, in other situations, like, I don't get it. It's not funny. And I feel like f so many institutions with me haven't seen me, haven't seen my potential, um, don't understand it. So, you know, and then they're in positions where they say, like, their voice is objective. So it's like, oh, I don't get what you're trying to do. I don't get what this is. This is not funny. And I really, I the, in the way that I run my spaces, in the way that I do my things, I just, all I can do is, like, change what I don't like about stuff. The longer that I'm in it, I feel like people view, like, oh, when I finally get staffed or when I finally this, then my life will change and everything will be great. And, like, I won't have to work as hard as, like, you know. And I, I from what I've seen, and, like, that's also an experience that, I mean, I haven't been, like, staffed in a writer's room yet, like, full time, you know, as my complete job. But... You know, I've just what I've been able to see with my friends and peers and whatever. It's just like no job is going to 100 percent encompass what you want to do. And it's just always I mean, there's definitely cons to having your hands in so many baskets. Like I feel burnout all the time because I'm working on like 50 things and I'm writing new sets and I'm doing this and all this stuff and I'm posting. And like there's a definitely like a bad side to it. But on the flip side, none of those are precious to you. So 
you know, if it doesn't work out or if, if things don't happen 100%, then you have other things to go back to. And I feel like that's just important forever. Like, you know, and I see even really, you know, like uh, Nick Offerman in Parks and Rec, you know, he did that show for so long and all this stuff. But then when it was time for him to write, you know, he did like his own movie. It was like Hearts Beat Loud. And it was like this like drama indie kind of thing about music and all this shit. And, like I'm like, oh, you can tell this. He really likes this. This is the kind of shit he wants to do. But it doesn't pay as well as being Ron Swanson, this iconic character. And I feel like that's where people get get it twisted and stuff is like oh well this is supposed to be my all-encompassing and like my dream thing or this and that and I just feel like nothing's ever gonna be that you know you should always be pushing yourself creatively in this you know with that in mind mm -hmm. what do you have coming up at the moment that you're really excited about and what do you need to get that thing done well for you Man, I mean, you know, I want to do the Steve Harvey show again. I like finished Succession and I, I, I floated around an idea with somebody of writing a parody called Oppression. And it's like a CEO is like leaving the company. So it's like which group is the most marginalized and is like a representative and like who's going to be the most depressed. So I'm like really excited to like sit and write that stupid thing. I actually, you know, the freedom of not having a day job. Um, I want to go to London and do some shows there for like a week or two. And I'm really excited about doing that. And like, like open having that possibility and like meeting people and like going there and, and stuff. I'm really excited about that possibility. Hey, Rosie here interrupting my own interview with Millie Tamaras to say that Millie did go to the UK. She booked her flights shortly after we did this interview. And so when she came back, literally in time for the borders of the US closing because of COVID-19, I got in touch with Millie in isolation and asked her to talk to me about how she made the trip happen and what the main takeaways from going to London were. It's so interesting listening to the energy of someone discuss a plan they're excited about before it's happened and then be able to listen to the energy of the outcomes of that plan after they've happened. It's something we all do. We all talk about doing things, but actually making them happen and then reflecting on them is incredibly vulnerable and it's a real gift. Yeah, I know in November I said I was planning it. New York is so intense and so stressful that like I've been finding that I needed to go on a restorative vacation and I need to do one of those at least once a year, you know, where I'm just like kind of off the grid, unplugged and just relaxing and recharging the battery so I can come in back to New York fresh and ready to go. But every time I'm about to travel or go somewhere, even for a wedding or for a few days, somebody's always like, are you going to do a comedy show there? Are you going to do comedy shows? You know, I always decide no, but I decided to kind of book a separate trip just to do comedy, you know, but I've never been to Europe uh, before. You know, I, I actually went to only Spain to visit family because I have a lot of family in Spain. Like I've never been yet yeah, to London or anywhere else. So it seemed like a place that other people were going to. And I had some very like light connections there. I thought, you know, I, oh, I know one or two people. So 
first I was kind of putting feelers out there and like kind of talking to people, people I connected to from Twitter, people I taught, I taught a workshop to, uh, you know, and then finally me and Marsha got together and we just bought the plane tickets and like, honestly, had we didn't like shifted anything literally by a day, we wouldn't have been able to do a lot of things because of the coronavirus. So we're, I, I consider myself really fortunate in that aspect. We started like flooding people's inboxes, asking people where we should submit, asking people like for shows in London, asking all the connections I've had, even loose connections, even people I met once like, hey, I'm going to come to London. I joined the Facebook groups and London was was a completely different landscape than New York. I feel like shows in London, they're really hard to book. Like it's hard to get on a show. Like you're basically asking for someone to take a chance on you. And there seems to be a lot of paperwork and bureaucracies. In New York, like if I want to be on a show, I mean, we're kind of in the apocalypse now, so it's different. I can be on easily two shows a night, if not like three. And it's really easy. Like all you have to do is email somebody that you know or post on a Facebook group and you can get in like that. In London, you're kind of like you have to send your tape. They want to know like what you're talking about and you have to be kind of vetted a little bit more. The shows were better produced. Like there were definitely a ton of people at every show, which is really, you know, in New York, it's so competitive and it's it's such a like harsh difficult landscape it's very easy for you to do shows with nobody in the audience so every show that I did was pretty packed so that was really cool to see even like on a Monday too yeah it was like packed full of people but there's just a lot less barriers to entry and I feel like a lot less competition and the comedy scene's a little smaller and more intimate yeah my friend said like you know she just cold emailed a, a like a show in London and now she gets to submit jokes for them on like this network which like would never happen in New York there's like so many hoops to jump to get paid to do this it takes so long and also you need like a following too in New York it can be really like demoralizing and make you feel like you're a loser sometimes because you don't have an agent a manager and a million Instagram followers where in London, it felt like, oh, I am talented. I can do this. I see other people doing this in another place. And I do have a lot of experience, you know. And um, it was cool just to see what people laughed at and what people didn't laugh at. I did a lot of jokes about, you know, like I do here about like healthcare, um, about, you know, like how I got fired and I lost my healthcare. So I had to go visit the do like, you know, five doctors in one month. That's like just kills here in the United States. But in London, they're like, oh, like they're like really concerned and sad because they have universal health care. And I'm like, OK, keep voting for Boris Johnson. You're going to be in my shoes, too. And like that really scared everybody. When you're booking a show somewhere abroad, I feel like you just got to let ego go. You can't be like, I'm the big hot shit here, you know, because it just doesn't matter. And you got to kind of respect their culture. Like, in terms of, like, what the co comedian culture is there and stuff. I also really found it as a good way to, like, meet people and then, you know, just also be like, hey, if you ever come to the U.S., like, here's my Instagram. Please message me. I would love to book you. And I do mean that because a lot of people are taking a chance on you and I would love to, like... Take a chance. And it also changes things up. I think, you know, one of the hosts of one of the shows was like, it really, like, like for like an open mic or something that I did, which open mics are like shows there, you know, again, like, over, like really produced and re like a good turnout. Um, but 
Yeah, I uh, I think that, you know, one of the guys was like, it really like shows the, you know, younger stand-ups, like there's different kind of styles. And even one of my friends that came and saw me, she was like, you know, we really don't talk about race the same way like as a whole society in the UK as they do it in the United States and it was also cool to see like to do more of like the people of color spaces like comedy spaces there and like the more like kind of liberal left-leaning spaces um which is stuff that I do here it's really cool to see over there because seeing like how they innovate and work on different things and stuff and like how I take for granted that there's a ton of people and there's a big community and stuff. And like, it was just really cool to do Sophie Duker's show, Wacky Racist. And like, it was super sold out. And like, yeah, it was really, really cool. So what do you need? What do I need? Oh man, money. (laughs) Money. And yeah, I just, and also just importantly, like to remember that I'm important and like just to remember that my ideas and my things need to be taken care of. And Millie needs to be taken care of before everything else. What does Millie taking care of herself look like? Whew. Doing my own projects and following through and prioritizing that and making space and making space to like write it and edit it and all that stuff. Doing things that I feel fulfilled creatively, you know, going to yoga recu- regularly cooking nice meals, eating well, um, and, you know, maintaining healthy relationships. And, like, just like I don't want a day job that follows me everywhere, I really try to work hard to, like, have relationships outside of comedy, like, whether it be friendships or, you know, dating and stuff like, you know, fostering a balanced life is really taking care of herself. But also, like, you know, where I'm fulfilled creatively and, like, following through on my things creatively is really taking care of herself. Would you tell me about a piece of comedy or satire from the annals of history that you really admire or that really makes you laugh and why? One is this, I think it was Above Average or Funny or Die, I can't remember. But, you know, you know, like the L train in, in Williamsburg, like there's the L train and like it got really damaged during Hurricane Sandy and they really need to like rebuild it because it's like not good. And one more hurricane will like completely blow it out forever. So they were talking about different solutions and the MTA was like, OK, what we're going to do is we're just going to close it for a year and we're just going to close it for a year. And then we're going to spend that year really making it better. And then it's going to be perfect. And all these people were like, what the fuck? Because it's like connects Manhattan to like Williamsburg, which is like where all these rich people live. So there's this above average piece that's like, you can't shut down the L train. White people live off of it, you know? (laughs) And in the thing, it was just like, how dare you? Like, don't you know white people live here? No matter that they do this all the time in different areas of New York where there are people, you know what I mean? Like white people live and you know what they didn't shut down the l train they're like oh you know what we'll just turn it off on on nights and weekends for the next three years instead of just closing it for a year so it's like true like you know what i mean it was so funny because i had a co-worker you know for like a white guy co-worker and he's like no they're not gonna shut down the l train like absolutely not they're not gonna do that like too many people live up there but like literally they closed down entire stops like miles out you know, where, you know, so I was just like, man, that's so fucking clever. 
And another piece of satire that I really like, which I'm sure people don't think of sketch comedy as satire, but I do, is like that Mad TV sketch, Can I Get Your Number? It's basically this girl and she's at the movie theater. And it's, uh, which I guess is a lot of like where I base Steve Harvey from. But it's this woman who's dressed up as a man, but you can't even really tell because she's so, it's so, it looks so good. And she's like, can I get your number? Can I have it? Can I? And like, basically the whole thing is like her harassing this woman or like, you know, a man harassing this woman for her number. And like, she pops up, like the actor pops up behind, like, you know, and just like, won't leave the woman alone. She's like, oh my God. And she's like, I love the back, the back of your neck is ridiculous. You know what I mean? And it's not just like cat calling is stupid. It's just also like to such a blown out ridiculous level to show how ridiculous it is that men do this, you know, and those are like two pieces that I feel strongly about, you know, you know, racial equality and and gender equality. But I also feel strongly about comedy and that comedy should be great and like funny and it shouldn't be like a soapbox. Um, And those are two pieces that I feel like are perfect. They combine those two things. And it reminds me a lot of a sketch that you've written that was white people absolving (laughs) themselves of their guilt by Venmoing you. Yeah. Hey, white people, are you feeling super guilty because your race overwhelmingly voted for and thus elected Donald Trump to be our 45th president of the United States? Is the guilt so intense that not even a safety pin will make you feel better about yourself? Why forgiveness is a service where you Venmo me at Millie Tamaris, Millie Tamaris, and I will publicly acknowledge you as one of the good white people. As a woman of color, I see oppression from all ends, and it'll be that much more valuable if I tell everyone that you're super woke. Firstly, did you get any money I out of that? I got a lot of money. <laughs> Hell yeah! Like over three hundred dollars. Oh my god! And people were sending me like a dollar, two dollars at a time. Did you have to do a lot of absolving as a product of that? So what I found was that like. Yeah, at first it was like a joke and it was like, yeah, like taking it was more about like people trying to be performative allies post Trump and using people of color to do that. So it wasn't even like, oh, I'm really sorry. How are you doing? It's more like, hey, I want you to know that I'm I'm not what like I'm not like this. Like, I don't I, you know, and it, there was this one guy, at, you know, after college, you know, and I went to college and like. Orange County, California, which is like pretty conservative and then also in like a really white neighborhood and stuff. So we were all like on a Facebook post. Everyone was debating about things. And I was just like, yeah, I remember like being super discriminated against in that neighborhood and in that area. You know what I mean? It's not like a really diverse city area. It's like the suburbs. And it was like really hard for me to even go to a CVS because they would check my bags or make me leave my purse in front and stuff like that in front of all my friends. Uh, and then this one guy was like, you're wrong. Like, it's not like because he's from the area and he was just defending the area and not really listening to me. And I was like, OK, fuck you. And I just like deleted him on Facebook. So then a few years later, you know, then like the Black Lives Matter movement came. It became cool to be woke. You know what I mean? It became cool to like care about other people, even performatively. You know, who care, you know, who knows about it? really so he dms me and he's like hey i'm really sorry about everything i'm really sorry i didn't think about like what and like you know and i've really grown and i, I really feel bad about what i said about that like 
I wasn't listening. And I was like, oh, yeah. And he's like, you know, when I'm in New York, we should grab drinks. And I'm like, I would love that. Like, great. Like, what a great apology. Like, what a great moment of growth. And I added him. And then like a few days later, he texts me and he's like, hey, do you think I can post my Facebook conversation with you to show other people how to apologize properly? And I was like, oh, you don't actually care if I'm okay. You don't actually care. Like, you just want other people to know that how, you know, and if you're going to do that, I, I'm going to charge you for it. You know what I mean? I, that was like a, that was a moment too where I'm like, oh, and then after Trump won, it, looking back, it shouldn't have been that shocking. You know, people are like, you're stupid if we're being shocked and, and all that stuff. But I just really, really was shocked. Like how many, how much... And it was shocking to all these people. And I think like the day after Trump won, the energy in New York was similar to like the day after 9-11 is what I've heard. I wasn't in New York for 9-11. But like you could feel the thickness in the air and like I would just be, you know, just crying for no reason. And like everyone was just like, it was just so hard. And then especially like, so I went to this like people of color, like healing session, which was so like hippie or whatever, but we like all got together and breathed and stuff. And then it was a lot of people, like all these people of color were like, all these white people in my life were reaching out to me and like, Hey, I just want you to know I'm one of the good ones. Or like, you know, just being so performative with it instead of being like, how are you? And then I was like, you know, they should be fucking paying us for this. And then that's when I came up with this stupid, if you want absorption, like you can pay me. And then um, people did start, you know, like at first it started out as a joke in the Venmo would be confessions. And then I would tag them and like write my commentary on it. I've most of them chronicled on a blog called whyforgiveness.tumblr.com or whatever. But what I found is the more that I did it, the more that I would get, which is not a bad problem. But then it's just like... I'm getting all this shit at work where like people are treating me shitty or this, like I still have to live with that reality of being a woman of color and like having people treat me like shit and all that stuff. And then like getting all these Venmos from people, like, you know, I'm just opening myself up to like, hello. Well, like racism is a joke. Like forgive me, please. And then like, after a while it got really old of like, this is I can't do this anymore and then also people were just unloading shit that I'm just like I know you're paying me like two dollars but I can't you know unloading like this guy's like I'm Jewish but I also have a Black Lives Matter and it was like really really intense and I was like whoa dude like calm down log off and then like a week later he posted on Facebook that was like hey guys I had a manic episode and I've been like in I've been committed for the past week and I've just been you know been in a mental state I'm like oh my god dude like that's the shit you know what i mean and i feel like people got upset that i stopped posting but i'm like if i keep posting then i'm gonna keep getting this i did get some dms of like hey somebody paid you and you didn't post their thing like that's fucked up and i'm just like you know a lot of people say that the marker of like really great satire is that it treads the line between reality and comedy mm -hmm. and certainly doesn't distract from the fact that that is an incredibly exhausting experience but at the same time what you're describing is like really poignant satire yeah. done incredibly well but then that having a consequence yeah for you yeah because it was also this really intelligent like interactive project like yeah. it was interactive satire yeah. that's yeah and i think too like on top of like the exhaustion i want to be seen as a as a person as a human being 
I didn't want my entire brand. I didn't want my entire thing about like, I'm telling white people what like what they did wrong. And like I my whole brand is white people this, white people that. Like, you know, I'm like, I don't know. I want to post about like which Disney character I want to fuck. And like I also want to post about dating. And I also want to post about like you know, like I'm just a human being that like experiences all these things. And I just don't want to be limited creatively or artistically into this one box. I do also feel that like any but any person of color who does that even a little bit that becomes their whole brand and they are labeled that way so i feel like that's like kind of a not fair thing that happens you know which i'm also aware of it sounds like though the people who create that pigeonholing are exactly the people who that one piece of comedy is about which is like white folks yeah so um I posted some things and then some some white male comedian who runs a really, really well-known podcast reposted it, called me a retard. And then all his followers were like, he basically unleashed his followers on me. And, you know, those people, like, they look through all your shit, you know? So I have a link of white forgiveness on my on my Twitter. And then, you know, they're like, oh, poke, say white people are bad and make it funny or and call it comedy. Like, you know, like, and it's just like completely ignoring the thing. And then it's like, oh, you're one of those people, those comedians that just talk about white people. You know what I mean? And I'm just like, no, dude, like, you know, it's like part of me wants to like, oh, you don't know. And, all and then the other part of me is like, it doesn't matter like that's what it's and I mean that's the thing about like even being a person of color you don't want to get too angry because if you're angry then you're the mad black woman or you don't want to say that you're disappointed in men or you don't like this male behavior or you don't feel like you shouldn't be followed home after work because then you're a man hater and that's bad the reality is there's no way to avoid that you're gonna be that no matter what in these people's heads no matter what you're gonna so you shouldn't be worried about that and I feel that about people who think that about my comedy. If like, if you look at like my entire work and you think that it's just making fun of white people, then you have then then that's just what it's going to be. It sounds like one of the greatest acts of inclusion that somebody from a majority lived experience can do is actually assume people are complex and listen to that complexity. Yet so hard. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah no exactly and like complexity and yeah and all that stuff and you know again it's not to say that i'm not there's not that i can't grow or i can't do this or can do that but it's just yeah like well i mean you're allowed to create one piece of comedy and not have that one piece of comedy therefore be everything that you have to do exactly and yeah i mean that's also too what we try to do at flex it's like you know a lot of people i mean we could we accept contributions from everyone but we really I think people think like, oh, it's a POC thing. I'm going to submit like all my things about hating white people. We're just like, we don't want those anymore. Like we want like POC sent like even that is just so far ahead of like, for example, like this one girl wrote this article that was like, I took a thought picture, you know, a sexy thirst trap with my grandmother's locket and now she's haunting me. And we like we're like, we love it. Actually, let's change it to Abuela. And like make make it a you know a Latin American person you know what I mean, and even the girl was like ah uh, actually like I don't know and, and we're like no we got it like we'll do it and even that's an example of something it's like it's not making fun of white it's just like from the perspective of and it's centering of like yeah the default isn't just you know, um or like this haunted house includes your immigrant parents looking over your report card, you know that's another one where it's just like that that's the kind of stuff that we want you know. 
for listeners who are starting out in comedy or who have been thinking about maybe getting into it themselves but Mm -hmm. are kind of deterred by this idea of getting scared about writing something then that being how they're going to be classified Mm. how do you push through that I think that it's okay to fail and I think it's okay to grow and I think that I feel like so many people are like this is my one chance they're like this is I don't want to and it's just like no one remembers no one cares you know if they do like whatever but like it's fine you know what I'm saying and um yeah, it's not the end of the world if you make the, like, you know, people are going to pigeonhole you no matter what. But like, I'm not pigeonholed myself. Like, that doesn't matter to me. I think, you know, it just reminds me of this one time this girl found me on Twitter and she hits me up and she's like, hey, can I meet with you and pick your brain about and she's like this black woman. And she's like, I want to start a YouTube channel and I want it to be funny, but I also want it to be informative. But I also want this. And we looked at like her inspirations and all this stuff. And I like I really try to help her write it. And I'm like, look, like. There's just going to be things that you learn doing this, but you have to try. You have to put yourself out there. It's like that balance of being like too precious and too whatever, but you have to do it. You know what I mean? You can't be like too precious about it. You know, you have to, you're going to have, you have to give yourself room to grow. And I feel like people who, people who put themselves, you know, they just try and they throw something and they see what sticks, you know, and it's kind of the same. Like you can't, yeah, you just have to try and fail and like, People are going to pigeonhole you no matter what, but that doesn't mean everyone will. And like there are people who recognize that, you know, you making a commentary on one thing doesn't mean that you're everything. And yeah, I can see your potential. And I feel like, yeah. One of the most outstanding things about you, Millie, to me, is that you also own a beautiful apartment. You own a beautiful apartment (laughs) and I can't wait for Vogue to come visit shortly after this. No, I feel like it's nicer inside than it does. It's Outside really looks lovely. Ter- terrible. I actually like it. It's kind of somebody did some graffiti w- literally with a paint gun, uh, but inside it does not. It's not that bad, and my room is pretty big, so you know. But yeah, what were you saying? One of the things that I really admire about you, Millie, <laughs> is um, you do more than one thing, and from this conversation, the key thing that I've gathered about how you also don't worry about being pigeonholed is that you see yourself as more than just a comedy writer Mm -hmm. you have mentored people you have facilitated things you have been given things back as a product of that Mm -hmm. and that by having that network Mm -hmm. you can be more than just one joke yes thank you (laughs) yeah I think, um, yeah, it all comes from you. If you don't view yourself as a multi-dimensional person, like it's not going to reflect in your art. And if you feel like you can only talk about this one thing, it's just not going to reflect. So you have to like accept yourself in that way too. Uh, and then when you accept yourself for who you are and what you're, what everything, then you're able to like make art about it. That was comedy multi-talent, instigator and innovator, Millie Tamaras. To round off each episode of The Antidote, we're bringing you a performance of a comedy piece that was featured on The Belladonna and is now being brought to life by the vocal talents of readers from around the world. Here is this episode's reading. I'm Keith Urban's Flatiron, and I'm tired, you guys. Written by Megan Sweet. Read by Josephine Barton. 
Imagine having to work every day of your goddamn life. Vacation, sick days, holidays, never heard of it. I've never celebrated a single Halloween. I look forward to telling my future grandchildren, you don't know how easy you have it back in my day. I had to work hard just to make ends meet. The only break I ever had was when Keith got replaced as an American Idol judge by a cowboy hat resting on a red solo cup. He was a mess that day. So was his hair. I long for the pre-Keith days, sitting nice and cosy in my packaging on the shelf of that Australian beauty supply store. I think about who else could have bought me. Maybe a preteen girl testing out a new look. Or a skater boy going through a punk phase. Or Natasha Leone. Can you imagine how much time off I'd get? These days, when I look at myself in the mirror, I feel old and used. I've really let myself go. My cord is frayed and tangled beyond repair. He uses me on the highest heat possible and it's exhausting. Sometimes I burn Keith's hand just to feel something. I have guilt for feeling this way. I know how important I am to Keith. He relies on me more than anyone else. I mean, have you ever seen him without straight hair? No. Because I do my job and I do it well. He's counting on me and I can't let him down. It's a one-sided relationship, but it's all I've ever known. I try to share these feelings of guilt with the hairdryer, but she tells me I'm overreacting. She doesn't understand. On the darkest of days, I think about my ex. She was colourful and round. We were opposites, but as they say, opposites attract. I'd admire her from inside my drawer, catching occasional glimpses whenever the medicine cabinet opened. I definitely romanticised her in my head. She barely knew I existed. I remember the last time I saw her, she was smoking hot. She overheated and blew a fuse. Nicole took her to work one day and, and left her there. That's when I knew it was over. I was burnt out. I fantasise about getting out of here one day. Seeing the countryside, maybe the ocean. Sure, I've been to tons of places, but everywhere looks the same from inside a carry-on suitcase. I've seen bathrooms far and wide, fluorescent lights beating down on me. I yearn to feel natural light, the sun shining on my handle. And what am I working towards, huh? To provide for my children? I lost custody of them years ago. But I guess Keithy Keith doesn't care that I want a life outside of his. One of these days, his damaged hair will burn right off his head. And I'll think to myself, I deserve to move on and give a teenage girl shitty beach waves. But for now, I just need to find a healthy balance. Maybe unplug for a while and reset. No, really, I need Keith to push my reset button. Josephine Barton is a vocal coach currently based in New York City. She has an MA distinction in voice studies from the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, London. Megan Sweet is a writer and comedian living in Brooklyn, New York. She's currently working at Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj, as well as assisting in the script department at Saturday Night Live. Her other credits include Late Night with Seth Meyers and Broad City. For more information about Josephine and Megan, a link to Megan's original Belladonna piece and links to Millie Tamaris's work and profiles, you can check out the show notes for this episode. 
Next time, we're sitting down with satirist, stand-up comedian, and late night with Seth Meyers' millennial beloved, Karen Chi, who is legitimately going to sell you on how great the film Paddington Bear 2 is. All the characters are really well crafted and defined. You can keep up to date with The Antidote by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or follow The Belladonna Comedy on Twitter at the underscore Belladonna's plural, or find The Belladonna on Facebook, or why not all of these things? Until next time.